Couldn't stand for that. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to start by um, telling you a story. You guys like stories? Um, when I first got saved, um, I was really excited about what God was doing in my life, and I read um, many, 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 many books on a variety of topics, most of which would probably fall under the subject of apologetics, um, because I was just interested to read, you know, creation versus evolution. Um, why is the Bible the Word of God? Why is it reliable? Um, and on and on and on and all those things. Um, and a lot of that initially was for myself, but then as I was at college at the time talking with people, I realized that they also had questions as well. Um, the challenge is that there was a lot of questions people could ask. Not just like 20 or 30, but like hundreds or even thousands. And that's a lot of books to read. So um, as I was reading some of these books and trying to answer people's questions, I noticed that I started forgetting some of the stuff that I'd already read. And so then I had to go back and review that stuff, while at the same time continuing to read more stuff to get more of those thousands of questions answers to. Um, that's very time consuming. It's not necessarily bad, I enjoyed it, um, but it's very time consuming. I also noticed as I dialogued with people that I could answer um, many of their questions, but they always had one more question. And usually what would happen is, is all those questions, and they'd be pop, 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 like popcorn just all over the place, but there's always one more question, and we'd always end up with the end of the conversation, me being in the middle of answering when, whether it was five minutes or 30 minutes, them having to, I mean, our time ended. Um, and then I noticed one more thing. I was always on the defense. I was the one answering all the questions. I was always the one going all over the map in a variety of subjects. And I started to wonder, um, if there was a better way. And so um, people were trying to poke holes in my belief system and I wondered maybe I needed to think about trying to graciously poke holes in their belief system. Additionally, in talking with other believers, um, I saw that some of them were hesitant to have um, these conversations because they weren't sure where they would lead and they weren't sure if, if they were prepared all the way, understandably. Um, so they kind of shied away um, from any conversation that, that, that might lead to some of those tough questions. Uh, the challenge is, is that we have to engage the culture on some level uh, in order to reach them. We have to enter uh, into the fray, so to speak. So what Andrew and I are going to do today is to propose to you a very straightforward and simple method of apologetics that really anyone can learn in about an hour. And you'll be equipped to discuss any topic with anyone at any time in a non-confrontational way. Sounds pretty good, right? Um, it's going to help you navigate those potentially tough conversations uh, while at the same time providing an opportunity for you to graciously make the other person think about what they really believe and the reasons they really believe it. Why is it important to do this with people? Because most people have not really taken time 
to think about what they believe or the reasons why they believe it. Uh, much of it is either a knee-jerk reaction or it's what their parents believed or it's what their professors have taught them, uh, what their friends believe, what their political party believes. But they really haven't given much careful attention um, to why they believe um, or what they believe. Now, when we talk about apologetics, it's a very wide and broad subject. There's even different categories of types of apologetics. Um, but for our purposes today, just a real simple definition of apologetics, kind of the wide view, is giving evidence in defense of the truth. And I, there's an outline probably in front of you. you just That'll help you as we go through this. What we're going to do is we're going to give you a very narrow slice of the apologetics pie. Um, it's a piece you can easily eat, a piece you can enjoy, a piece you'll be able to put into practice right away, and a piece you'll like putting into practice. Um, now, when we start talking about apologetics, people sometimes ask, why should we use apologetics? I'd say there's probably two main reasons. One, it's prescriptive. It's prescribed to us in the Bible. We're commanded to. Um, on your papers, it says uh, 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now that word defense there <clears throat> in the Greek is the Greek word apologia. It's actually where we get our English word apologetics. And what does it mean? Well, it means what the verse says it means. Make a defense. Be prepared with an answer. So it's prescriptive. We're commanded to. Um, second, it's descriptive. It's descriptive. We see it in the scriptures as a way to reach people with the gospel. Um, this was Paul's normal practice. Look, um, if you have your Bibles, look at Acts 17. Because of time, I'm just going to go straight to the particular verse that I want you to see um, in, in each of these sections. Acts 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Okay, Notice what it says, as was his custom. What's he doing? He's reasoning with them. He's trying to persuade them. He's making a defense of his position and then challenging their position. Uh, about 15 verses later in verse 17, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So in the synagogue, he's reasoning. In the marketplace around the Greeks, He's reasoning. That's what he's doing as he tried to reach them with the word of God. Next chapter, chapter 18, verse 4. Again, and he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 19, same chapter. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 
Next chapter, chapter 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And then the last one is in chapter 24. This is when he's actually giving his defense before Felix. Chapter 24, verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Paul, time and time again, is reasoning and persuading. Reasoning and persuading. So he is trying to challenge their beliefs and then presenting a defense of his beliefs. It's descriptive of what we see as Paul. Now in all of our outreach and in all of our evangelism and all of our opportunities to engage with people, we need to remember one key thing. We are ambassadors. Uh, right there in your notes, it says 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now think if a U.S. ambassador um, showed up at his meeting with some top official from another country and was using all sorts of crude language. Who does that reflect on? In part, it reflects on him, but it also reflects on the person and the country that he's representing. Does it hurt his position? Does it hurt the request he's making? Yeah. Um, what if he's rude and demeaning to the top official? Will he likely get what he's requesting? No. So an ambassador has to handle himself in a certain way. Doing so enhances his position and makes it more likely to have his case heard on its own merits. At a minimum, we don't want to hurt the message through our words and actions. Um, and really what we want to do um, is everything we can to enhance the message through our words and actions. Think of the verse I read earlier, 1 Peter 3.15. Notice the first part of that verse. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That deals with our character, honoring Christ, the Lord is holy. Then notice the last part of the verse, with gentleness and respect. So how does Peter start off that section? It's really our character is key as we're making a defense and being prepared and ready to give an answer. Before we can defend, we have to make sure we don't offend. Now, there's three key characteristics, and anyone who's been on Facebook, by the way, um, you can see example. if you got on right now, you'd see examples of people um, not being good Christian ambassadors. There's three key characteristics of a Christian ambassador. One, knowledge, an informed mind. An ambassador has to have uh, some type of basic knowledge. Minimally, he has to know the character, the mind, the traits, purposes of his king. So, an informed mind. Second, wisdom, which is an artful method. An artful method. Knowledge must be deployed in a skillful way. 
there's an element of wisdom, uh, a tactical and artful diplomacy that makes the message persuasive. And then third, character, an attractive manner. Because an ambassador brings himself along in everything he does, his personal maturity and individual virtue can either make or break the message. Now, when we're talking with people, the overall picture of what we're trying to accomplish is what I'd call strategy. Okay, that's our game plan. We want to challenge their thinking. We want to poke holes in their beliefs. Um, as apologist Greg Kokel says, we want to put a stone in their shoe. Okay, we want to give them something. If you have ever had like a little something in your shoe, it just drives you crazy. You have to stop and deal with it. So put a stone in their shoe. Give them something that forces them to stop and deal with it. So strategy is our overall game plan. But tactics is literally the art of arranging. The art of arranging. It involves the orderly, hands-on arrangement of the particulars. Tactics focus on the immediate situation at hand. For apologetics and conversation, this translates to what do I say, when do I say it, how do I say it. For illustration, think of a basketball game. The strategy for a particular game might be they've got a really tall guy, so we're going to double team him. Okay, that's strategy. Uh, another strategy might be we're a really fast team, so we're going to run and gun and really push the tempo because we think we can outrun them. That's strategy. But tactics are the nuts and bolts of what actually occurs once the game begins. Where you dribble, who shoots, who you pass to, and so on. So you adjust to what actually occurs in the game. In the same way, you have to adjust in your conversation by guiding the conversation through questions and techniques. This leads us into specific tactics, which Andrea will now come and address. Hello, hello, awesome. okay. <clears throat> hello. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? <laughs> All right. Did you hear? Christians are trying to get the government to revoke taxpayer funding from Planned Parenthood. <laughs> but haven't these people ever heard of separation of church and state? Christians are always trying to force their views on everyone else. You can't legislate morality. Imagine you are sitting in the waiting room of a car dealership. A news story flashes across the television screen that uh, causes the person sitting across from you to make these kind of remarks. What would you say? In this instance, you don't have very much time to respond. You have about a 10-second window of opportunity to do something. 
How will you make the most of this opportunity that God has basically set on a silver platter before you? Um, imagine that you're at a Bible study and a newcomer pipes up. Who are we to say that Christianity is better than any other religion? The essence of Jesus' teaching is love, same as all religions. Who are we to tell other people how to live or what to believe? Imagine somebody says, there is no God. Believing in God isn't rational because there's no proof. Imagine they say, the Bible is just a fable because it requires miracles, and miracles are impossible. <sighs> All right, so if I don't uh, look very happy up here sometimes, it's because I'm extremely nervous, so I just want to apologize in advance. <laughs> All right. Um, so in these circumstances that I just mentioned, our goal is not to preach about our view or even to disagree with theirs, okay? We don't want to give them a five-point list of, you know, how the world religions differ. Rather, we want to draw them out and invite them to share more of their opinion. We want them to talk about what they believe and why they believe it. We want to make them think, okay? This is why we're going to ask questions, <clears throat> To help us accomplish this, Greg Kokel introduces to us the Columbo Tactic. The Columbo Tactic is named after a fictional television character, Lieutenant Columbo, who happens to be a homicide detective with the Los Angeles Police Department. And maybe some of you watched this back in the day. I don't know. This was before my time. I'd never heard of this dude, okay? But this guy, he is... He's a case. He um, arrives at the scene in his rumpled trench coat and his disheveled hair, smoking a cigar, he's got his pad of paper, and it, it, he just like can't ever seem to find his pen. And he goes and he pokes around the crime scene, um, muttering to himself, making observations, scratching his head. And his unkept appearance and stupid mannerisms, having put the suspect at ease, he eventually gets to the point where he says, do you mind if I ask you a question? And then he proceeds to ask them question after question, and he pretty much questions them to death until he gets to the heart of the matter. So we're going to take a page out of Lieutenant Columbo's book, and we're going to learn how to use questions to get to the heart of the matter. So under, at the top of your page, under the fundamental rule of Columbo, you're going to write, never make a statement always ask a question. This is the fundamental rule we want to follow. And it's not like you're never, ever, ever going to make a statement, but generally speaking, we want to be in question mode, okay? So never make a statement, always ask a question. What is great about this method is that by using it, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior, for he frequently asked questions. Many times when faced with a hostile crowd, he responded by questioning the logic of their assertions. Um, in response to the craftiness of the scribes and the chief priests in Luke 20, 24, Jesus said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Again, he answered them in Luke 20, verse 4, and he said, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? In Mark 2.9, he asks, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your pallet, and walk? Right. Jesus didn't waste his words. 
He knew what he was doing. He knew the hearts of men. And he understood the power of a well-placed question. So we're going to look at two key questions from this wonderful, awesome, magnificent, amazing book that I love. And the first question, the Columbo question number one, you're going to write, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Now, this question accomplishes a few different things for us. First, it engages us in meaningful conversation. Second, <clears throat> it helps the person to think about what they believe. What are their reasons? Or, you know, what exactly are they talking about? Thirdly, it helps to clarify meaning. And this is probably the key point of this, this question. We want to we define terms, okay? If someone says to you, there is no God, you can say, what do you mean by God? This is helpful because if by God they mean an angry old man who's like sitting up there somewhere on a throne with a lightning bolt ready to like strike you down if you step out of line, well, great. We don't believe in that God either. The last thing you want to find yourself doing is arguing against an idea that the other person doesn't even hold. Um, some other uh, just short examples of how to use this question. If somebody says, a woman should have the right to choose, you can say, what do you mean by choose? Choose what exactly? What are we talking about here? They say you can't legislate morality. What do you mean by morality? Are you saying that we shouldn't make laws regarding murder and thievery? We want them to think about what it is they are actually saying here. All right, Columbo question number two. You're going to write, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that conclusion? My seven-year-old loves this question. He <laughs> says it a lot. It's so cute. All right. Um, when someone says that the essence of Jesus' teaching was love, same as all religions, they are trading on the pluralistic idea that all religions are basically the same. You can say, how did you come to that conclusion? What are your reasons? We want to know, have they studied all religions? Um, you know, why should we focus on the similarities of religions over the differences? Aspirin and arsenic are both white and come in tablet form. Uh, does that mean they're basically the same? <laughs> Would we like to mistake one for the other when we got a headache? No, of course not. Okay, it's the differences that are critical here. It's the same with the world religions. Hinduism teaches um, that when you die, you're reincarnated. Atheism teaches that um, when you die, you cease to exist. Christianity teaches that when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. Now, when you die, you might get reincarnated, or you might cease to exist, or you might go to heaven or hell, but you can't do all three at the same time, <laughs> right? So it's the differences that, that, are, that are critical, and we want to use this question to draw out their reasons for believing what they're, what they're saying. So this question, how did you come to that conclusion? <clears throat> it does three things for us. One, it helps us to know why they believe as they do. The question before, what do you mean by that, helps us to know what they believe. It helps to define terms. 
this question helps us to know why they believe it. Um, secondly, if this question is asked in the right way with the right tone, we're ambassadors, right? If we're, if we are, um, if our demeanor and the tone of our voice is, is right, okay, we're going to make them feel like we really care what they think and why they think it. And, and we do want to care. We really genuinely want to care because, um, you know, out of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's coming out of this person is the darkness that is inside of them, and we want to address this darkness, and we want to shine light into it. Um, thirdly, and probably most, the most important uh, purpose of this question is that it reverses the burden of proof. Okay, there is a difference between making an assertion and giving an argument. An assertion is a simple statement of fact or belief. An argument is an assertion plus here's the reasons why I believe it or here's the reasons why it's true. Okay. Many objections and challenges to Christianity rest on simple assertions and mere stories. I'm going to read you this example from Greg's book. <clears throat> it's one of my favorite examples that he gives. Okay, so Greg is a guest on a top-rated secular radio station in uh, Los Angeles. And the topic is intelligent design over creation. And they're talking about the Big Bang, and Greg's famous line that he loves is, a Big Bang needs a Big Banger. And so someone calls in, and they disagree, and this is what they say. The Big Bang doesn't need God. You could start with a base of nothing, and you could say that there was nothing but an infinite, continuous moment until one tiny little insignificant thing happened, a point in the nothingness. This requires no intelligence, so no intelligent God had to intervene. All we need is a tiny imperfection in the perfect nothingness that expanded and became increasingly complex, and soon you have galaxies and planets. So Greg responds this way. You're right about one thing. You could say that. <laughs> you can spin any yarn you want, but then comes the hard part giving reasons um, why we should take your science fiction story seriously. It's not my job to disprove your something from nothing fairy tale. It's your job to prove it. You haven't done that. You haven't even tried. The caller on this radio show had thrown down his gauntlet and then expected to walk off with the prize without a struggle. This happens all the time, but I wasn't going to let him off that easily, and neither should you. For too long, we have let others contrive fanciful challenges and then sit back and watch us squirm. Those days are over. No more free rides. If they tell the story, let them defend it. They need to give an argument. So as we see here, a story does not evidence make. When you are in conversation with someone, ask yourself, are they giving me reasons? Are they just giving me an alternate explanation? Are they providing evidence? Are they just making assertions? So some important things to remember are, you're going to write, an assertion is not evidence. And an alternate explanation is not a refutation. OK? They spin the story. 
They make a truth claim, they have to defend it. They need to give an argument. There are three um, helpful questions to ask yourself when somebody is giving you an alternate explanation. The first one, is it possible? And this is your outline, you're gonna fill this in. Is it possible? For instance, some have made the assertion that the teaching of reincarnation was actually originally in the Bible and was removed sometime during the fourth century. Somebody says this to us, we want to ask ourselves, okay, could this actually even happen? There were literally tens of thousands of New Testament documents circulating around the early Roman Empire for like 300 years, okay, between like whatever, 60, 70 AD when they were written until the fourth century, right? Deleting a text from these documents would have been literally impossible. It would be like you trying to remove an article from uh, the most recent uh, version of Better Homes and Gardens, which is now all over the country. It's in hospital waiting rooms. It's in people's houses. It would be literally impossible for you to secretly remove some article from that, uh, that magazine. And the same was true here. It would have been impossible to secretly, re secretly remove that, that teaching because everybody would have known it was missing and you wouldn't have been able to remove it from every single document. So is it possible? Next question, is it plausible? Is it plausible? Is it worthy of belief? It's possible that I might go home and have peas for dinner tonight. But it's not plausible for one simple reason. I hate peas. <laughs> they make me gag, and there ain't no way I'm going home and fixing them for myself for dinner. Not happening. Next question, is it probable? Okay, is this likely to happen? Given the evidence, given all the options, and looking at the evidence, um, what is the best option for us? Um, <clears throat> members of a jury, um, when judging a court case, are asked to um, determine the guilt or innocence of a defendant based on evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Notice, they are not asked to judge evidence beyond a possible doubt, okay? If they were asked to do that, they literally wouldn't be able to convict anybody because there's holes in every case. Not only that, nobody was there to see it happen. So you could never know 100% for sure, absolute, no doubt that this person is guilty or innocent. Similarly, um, we don't live our lives based on what's possible. If we did, we would never leave our house because it's possible that on the way we could get into a car accident, right? Or if we're walking down the street somewhere, we could get mugged or any number of things. Um, we don't live our lives based on what's possible. We, we live our lives based on what is reasonable. All right, so now we're gonna look at some special circumstances that um, I kinda wanna go over with you in case you ever find yourself in them because I think that they can kind of be pretty common and you'll be able to use your Columbo method. You're asking questions in these situations. The first one is called the professor's ploy and I need another drink of water. Okay, so this is gonna apply primarily to students. We've all been a student at one time or another. There's students in this room right now and some of us will be students in the future probably. 
So imagine you're sitting in class and the professor's like, the Bible is just a bunch of fables. What you do not want to do as a student is you don't want to raise your hand and be like, professor, here's the five-point list of why the Bible is not a bunch of fables. That's a trap. Don't take the bait. You, instead, you want to use your questions, um, what do you mean by that, and how did you come to that conclusion to draw out the professor's reasons for saying that. So you can say to your professor, what do you mean by fables? What kind of fable are you talking about? Um, are you saying the Bible has no historical significance? After he clarifies his view, you can ask him, how did, you come to his, how did he come to his conclusions, his conclusions? We want to know what evidence that he has for making that assertion. Now, by doing this, okay, you are honoring an important cardinal rule of engagement. So under cardinal rule of engagement, you are going to write, fill in the blanks, never make a frontal assault on a superior force in an entrenched position. Never make a frontal assault on a superior force in an entrenched position. AKA, the man with the mic always wins. And if the professor can make you look stupid, he's going to make you look stupid, okay? So instead, we want to ask questions to draw out his reasons and just have, you know, have faith that you know, if he doesn't have good reasons, that's going to be obvious to the students in class if he doesn't you know, have good reasons to back up what he's saying. Um, now, what can happen sometimes um, is that the, the professor might he might like to turn it on you. And he, he might like to be like, oh, I see, you're one of those conservative, fundamental Christians who thinks that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Well, why don't you give us a moment and uh, take a moment and uh, prove to us why the Bible's true. This is another trap. <laughs> don't take the bait. You haven't said anything about your view, okay? So what he's doing, in one swift move, he has turned the burden of proof onto you. You... This isn't fair because you haven't said what you believe, okay? So what you're going to do is you're going to turn the burden of proof back on him, and you're going to say, well, actually, Professor, I haven't stated what I believe. I was just really interested to know your reasons because um, that was an interesting statement, and I wanted to know how you came to that conclusion. I'm just a student trying to learn. Um, all right. The next special circumstance... This next one is a fun one. This is called the hot seat. Sometimes you're going to meet somebody who becomes really aggressive and who actually knows something about the subject matter in play. And they come on strong, and they're asking you question after question and making point after point. And, you know, they're probably maybe kind of arrogant and mean. Some of you, I'm sure, know what I'm talking about. You've probably gotten into a situation like this before. When you find yourself outmatched, you want to not panic. You want to instead ask the person to slow down, tell them, tell you, tell you what they believe, and to give you like their top three reasons why they believe it. So that you can better understand their position. And that is the angle you want to take on this. I really, you know, I've not heard these points before. This is really interesting information. I really want to understand. And you do. 
because you want to go home later and you want to look up those reasons and do some research so that you can be better prepared for next time. Then after they uh, give you their reasons, you want to say the magic words. You're going to write, let me think about it. And this can work really in any circumstance where you find yourself outmatched and over your head. Don't, don't try to continue to engage somebody when you find yourself outmatched. Just say, let me think about it. That, those are some good points. And then you easily get yourself off the hook and you do it in a way that saves a lot of face and is also gracious to the other person. I want to encourage you, okay, you're going to come to these situations where you're not going to know something that somebody's talking about. One time I had this gentleman come to my home and he was, he was working on my oven and I decided that I was going to try to share the gospel with him. And um, he's like, oh, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> and then he's like, um, did you know that the Bible isn't complete? That there's actually books missing from the Bible? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> and then he starts to tell me about the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of, you know, I don't even remember really what they were, Judas, Thomas, whatever. And at the time, I had never heard of the Gnostic Gospels. I had no ground to stand on in conversation with this guy. Um, but what you can do in a situation like that, again, is just say, let me think of let's, Those are some interesting things. I'm going to go look that up and um, do some research on that because I really want to know about that. And I'll tell you what, that's actually one of the um, first times in my life where I thought to myself, wow, I really need to... Go look into some of this stuff so that I can be prepared for next time. All right, the next, oh, oh, this is, this is key, okay? You want to keep a notebook. I have a binder at home, and what I do for my binder, I meant to bring it to show you, but I forgot it, is I take computer paper and I hole punch the computer paper to use as my dividers. And then I get those little tabs that you can like peel and stick onto the pages. And the reason why I do it this way, I don't go buy like a package of whole plastic um, dividers because those are expensive and you only get like eight in a package, <laughs> right? This way you can like put as many tabs as you need. And sometimes I'll have um, a subject matter where I just only want to file one little piece of paper behind it. I don't want to do extensive research on it. And that way I'm not uh, wasting this huge or this expensive tab divider. And then my binder is actually really fluid, and I can move it around, and I can reorganize it. And if I decide to chuck a tab, I don't feel like I wasted a ton of money. But you want to keep a binder and a notebook for um, study and writing things down. You know, you can have a tab for the problem of evil in the world. You can have a tab for homosexuality. You can have a tab for abortion, a tab for this, a tab for that. And every time that you learn and grow on that subject, you record what you learned so that you can go back and reference it and practice it. All right, next special circumstance, turning the tables. If you suspect that someone will label you intolerant if you answer, or you suspect they're going to call you a bigot, okay? This is, you know, like one of those, you're at work, and you're standing around in a group with your colleagues, and some polarized political subject comes up, and they're like, David. 
what are your views on homosexuality? And they know you're a Christian, and they're trying to call you out, basically. So what you can do in this instance is you, well, the best thing to do, really, is to bring up the issue that's kind of in the background before it becomes a problem. You want to say, well, fellow coworker of mine, that's kind of a personal question, and I'd be happy to answer it. But before I do, I need to know something. Would you consider yourself a tolerant person or an intolerant person? <laughs> um, you know, do you judge others, or are you accepting of views that differ from your own? And so here you're calling a spade a spade, and you are handling this issue before it becomes a big issue. Um, so now we're going to role play a little bit. We're going to um, take these questions and just kind of put them in some situations to kind of help you get a flavor for how to use them. Now, these situations that we have here are scripted, but really they could go like half a dozen different ways, okay? But we just only chose one way for each thing. You're intolerant. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Why would you consider me an intolerant person? Well, it's clear that you think you are right and everyone who disagrees with you is wrong. I guess I do think my views are correct. Um, I could be mistaken, but I don't think I am. What about you? You seem to be disagreeing with me. Do you think your own views are right? Um, yes, I think I'm right, but I'm not intolerant. You are. That's the part that confuses me. Why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, but when you think you're right, you're just right? What am I missing? The Bible is just a bunch of myths. Um, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, there's miracles in the Bible. Miracles can't happen. And what makes you think that? Because science has proven that miracles can't happen. Hmm, I'm confused. Science is the study of our natural world. It doesn't measure the supernatural. So how is it possible that science has proven that miracles can't happen? There is no God. What do you mean by God? Well, I mean the God of the Bible, the Christian God. He doesn't exist. How did you come to that conclusion? Because of all the evil in the world. Well, how does the presence of evil negate God's existence? The Christian God is supposed to be good and loving, right? A good and loving God would never allow bad things to keep happening to people. Well, you might be surprised to find that the presence of evil in the world is actually an argument in favor of God's existence, not against it. And how's that? Well, how can we know about evil if there is no standard of good to measure it by? We know things are evil because there is a good God in heaven who sets the laws as to what is right and what is wrong. Awesome, thanks. He's going to come back up in just a second because we're going to do more role play.
Um, but first, I just want to say a short little blurb on the suicide tactic. The suicide tactic um, regards statements that pretty much kill themselves. <laughs> they can't stand up to their own standard of measure. It'd be like um, a statement like, this is kind of a funny one, um, all English statements are false. Well, that statement includes all English statements, which includes itself. So it's saying that it's false, but it's claiming to make a, a, a statement about truth. So it commits suicide. It's uh, incoherent. It violates the law of non-contradiction. Um, these statements are self-refuting. They fail to meet their own criteria. So I, I have some examples on your papers, and each one is a, a truth claim. It's kind of like a, a saying that we hear often, okay? And what, what we want to do is, is we want to uh, put forth a well-placed question to draw out the suicidal tendency of the assertion. So the first one is, there is no truth. And this is pretty obvious, but you would ask, is this statement true? <laughs> so go ahead and write, is this statement true? Number two, you can't know anything for sure. Are you sure about that? <laughs> Number three, no one can know any truth about religion. And how precisely did you come to know that truth about religion? How precisely did you come to know that truth about religion? Number four, talk about God is meaningless. Does this statement about God have meaning? Don't you just love these? These are so much fun. I love these. Number five, you can only know truth through experience. And what experience taught you that truth? The top three are all basically different ways to ask the truth question. There's also another one that's really popular. It's um, when they say, everything is relative. Well, is that, a relative, is that statement relative? Because if it's relative, eh, you know, you can't know for sure. Um, all right, now we're going to do some role play here with the suicide tactic. Um, these down here. So, like the ones that I just that I just shared with you are pretty obvious. Their self-refuting tendency is pretty obvious, but sometimes you're going to get scenarios and statements that they're just not as obvious. So we're actually going to go through some of those right now. Okay. Um, you know, you think God is on your side, but you're wrong. God doesn't take sides. Well, let me ask you a question. In this disagreement we're having on whether or not God takes sides, what do you think God's opinion is? Well, I just told you, God doesn't take sides. Right. So in our dispute, God would agree with you, not me. That's right. So he would side with you on this issue then. I guess God does take sides after all. God takes sides. 
All right, let me see if I understand. You think the Bible must be flawed because people wrote it and people make mistakes. Yes, that's the way it seems to me. I'm curious. Why do you think you're an exception to this rule? Well, what do you mean? Well, you don't seem to think that you've made a mistake in your own judgment about the Bible, but you're a flawed human being too. Well, I didn't mean that people always make mistakes. If people don't always make mistakes, then you can't rule out the Bible just because people wrote it, can you? I don't believe in religion. Well, why not? There's no scientific evidence for it. Well, then you shouldn't believe in science either. Why not? There's no scientific evidence for it. <laughs> awesome, thank you. All right, so let's see how much time I got here. Awesome. Yay, I'm going to end early. I was a little worried. Okay, so I want to recommend some resources for you. Uh, there should have been a piece of paper at your table, at your place setting. Um, now, these are, this is not an exhaustive list of books on apologetics, and there are tons of awesome books on apologetics, but these are just three to get you started. Um, the first one, Tactics with Greg Kolkel. Very practical book, and I highly recommend you read it because there are so many more examples in this book than what we went through. The next one is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. And then um, there's Keeping Your Kids on God's Side by Natasha Crane. Now, I have these books with me. They're not up here, but I have them, so if you want to look at them later, you can. Um, part of the reason I recommend the keeping your kids on God's side, and by the way, I recommend it for everybody, not just people who have kids, and the reason why is because the book is set up like a reference book. It's like every chapter is a different issue, and you can just flip to that issue and get a short synopsis as to why it's the, uh, the truth claim, the worldly truth claim is errant. And it also will give you a little bit of background um, on that issue. All right, Twitter. Who's on Twitter? Who's not on Twitter? <laughs> all right. So you all aren't getting a gift card to El Tio Pepe, are you? So sad for you. Um, all right. I recommend getting a Twitter, if for no other reason than to follow these gentlemen, because they just they put out article after article after. Um, statement that are, they just, it's like I follow them just so that I can keep my mind fresh and, I, and I'm constantly putting the information in front of me so it's constantly fresh in my brain. Every day I go to Twitter and I check and I see what they're saying and what articles they're recommending. Um, now I'm not recommending that you follow Greg Kokel. You can follow him and he does post but he's just not a more frequent poster on Twitter for whatever reason. But the person that I would recommend you follow is Brett Kunkel. He works with Greg Kokel. They go around and do seminars together, and he posts all the time. He's a great one to follow. Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, Sean McDowell. And there's plenty of other people you could follow. These are just to get you started. Um, Frank Turek's awesome because he gives these, like, he makes these videos that are like one-minute apologist videos and like tells you how to answer a question in one minute or less. It's like really awesome. So I would highly recommend following those people. Um, 
I just want to say something about sharing the gospel. Every time that you get into a conversation with somebody isn't necessarily going to be a slam dunk. Okay? Sometimes you're going to get to the gospel right away. Other times you're going to be using your tactics and maneuvering in conversation and you're going to get to the gospel. But then sometimes you're not even going to get to the gospel depending on the circumstance or the situation. And I don't want you to be discouraged about that or feel like you failed. Sometimes it's just the nature of the circumstance. But keep learning, keep growing, keep trying, and keep pressing on, and trust that God is going to handle that person. He's going to send someone else, okay? Also, when you're speaking with someone, keep in mind that many times you are not going to see the results of the truth that you have sown. Um, Some people are what I call harvesters, okay? They walk into the room They say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. This is how you can get saved. And everybody's like, me, 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 me. And everywhere they go, me, 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 me. That's not me, okay? I don't have that gift. That, I think, would be what what would really be classified as the gift of evangelism, maybe, or part of it. Um, But most of us are what I call seed sowers. Our job is to sow the seed into the field, okay? Uh, Whenever you practice your tactics and are sharing the gospel, keep this in mind. You will sow seeds that you will never see come to fruition this side of heaven. Just because a person doesn't seem to have responded well to your words doesn't mean you didn't make a difference in their heart. It doesn't mean that they're not going to go home and think about it. It doesn't mean that they're not going to go home and be bugged by it, okay? Like Mike said, Greg says we want to put a stone in their shoe uh, to the effect that it's bothering, bothering them so much that they have to deal with it. Um, lastly, we must pray. We must pray for God to give us a heavy burden for the lost. I know this gets said so much that it pretty much sounds cliche. Um, in fact, at one point in my life, several years ago, I got to the point where I was really, really tired of hearing people tell me, you need to pray. And for everything, it was, you need to pray. You need to pray about this. You need to pray about that. And for everything in your life, pray, pray, pray. Well, at that time in my life, prayer was boring. It was dull. I didn't feel like God was moving or working. I didn't feel like I was hearing his voice. Well, let me tell you something. I had a faith problem. And... Some of you in this room have a faith problem. And you need to go before the Lord, and you need to ask him to help your unbelief, especially when it comes to this issue of sharing the gospel, because it's such a hard thing to do. Um, If you don't exercise your faith, prayer will be uh, dull and ineffective. Jesus said, according to your faith, According to your faith, so be it. So we must be faithful to pray for the lost. We need to trust God that he's going to answer. And we need to wait expectantly for him to do it. Now, sharing the gospel is our primary priority, right? Um, Using our tactics, using these questions... Sometimes we're going to get into uh, situations where we have to use these. You know, 
we're not always primarily sharing the gospel. We have to, like Mike said, we're in the culture, and we have to deal with situations as they arise. And these questions help us to be prepared for that. They help us to be ready to give an answer. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, thank you to Mike and Andrew. We'll be giving out the Academy Awards later today. Um, I wanted to make a few comments, um, and then we're going to go to a break. Uh, I want to read the passage again that, that uh, Mike and Andrew shared on. It's in 1 Peter 3. I just want to make an observation or two. It says uh, in uh, 1 Peter 3:13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if... Notice the even if. In other words, somebody might harm you even though you're doing good, right? Even if. If you read Peter, the whole context of Peter is suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God, or some versions say the Lord Christ, or Christ the Lord, in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Um, it's very interesting, as we've been talking in our community about evangelism and outreach, one word I've probably heard more than any other word is the word fear. And I'm not talking about fear coming out of the mouths of baby Christians. I'm talking about fear coming out of the mouths of Christians who have been saved for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Now, I, I, if I was witnessing to, you know, uh, the king of Saudi Arabia or something, I'd probably be afraid. But the girl at Starbucks? I mean, I mean Really? Really? Now, when Peter wrote this, Christians were literally dying, dying, or at best getting all their goods confiscated and being thrown in jail. Well, we're not there yet, but if the culture continues, we will be there. What are we going to do then? I firmly believe that some Christians will be happy when a law is passed that says you cannot share the gospel, because then they have an excuse. Well, I'm just an obedient citizen. I'm not supposed to share the gospel. So um, we have opportunities now to share the gospel in a context in which the worst thing that's probably going to happen to you is somebody will kind of smirk at you. Someone might talk behind your back at work. Now, it's possible you might lose a promotion. It's possible you might lose your job. It's possible. Highly unlikely, but it's possible. You know, C.S. Lewis, ever heard of him? You know, he was persecuted. He was not given the academic chair he deserved because of his Christian faith. But he counted the cost, and he, he knew he would get pushed back. So, you know, this fear thing is, is quite frankly, for, for us, it's irrational. It is irrational. And when something irrational is in your mind... That tells you one or two things. You're either crazy or it's demonic. 
Okay. This fear thing is demonic. And that's why Peter says not just to be ready, but to sanctify the Lord in your heart. The Lord. So when you're addressing people, Jesus is Lord. He's sovereign. And you're standing in his authority to speak his truth. And you don't need to be afraid of people. Quite frankly, the more you will share the gospel, what you will find is people are afraid of you. It's true. Take your Bible out. Walk through Walmart. The aisles part. Okay? Take your Bible into a restaurant. You'll have a table. I am serious. I am serious. People are afraid of you. Because whether they know it or not intellectually, they, they sense the light, they, they know we have truth. And they're afraid of the truth. We don't need to be afraid. And if you're afraid, you need to pray the fear away. And, and if you're afraid, you need to, as Andrea said, you need to step out in faith. You just obey. And the more you obey, the more you walk in faith, the more confident you are, and the more you realize you have nothing to fear. What's the saying? Nothing to fear but fear itself. Right? Um, I was going to make another observation. What was it? Oh. So sometimes people are afraid of you, and so that's why they get really defensive and mean in the conversation, because they're afraid. Yeah, right. yep. People can be mean, yeah. definitely. Um, so the, uh, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. And if you have a good conscience, you can be defamed. That's okay. You can be criticized. That's okay. The things that we Americans experience for our faith are nothing like Jesus experienced and nothing like the early church experienced and nothing like the church today in China and the Middle East and other places is experiencing. Right? So um, if we can't stand now, what will we do if real persecution comes? Real persecution. So this is, this is uh, well, that's all I'm going to say on that. Can I say a quick prayer, and then we're going to have a break? Lord, I thank you for the word we've heard today. We pray, God, that um, each one of us would sanctify you as Lord in our hearts. I pray that you would fill us with faith. I pray that we would obey. We would just obey. And trust your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. Lord, your word says that the righteous are bold as a lion. And I pray that you would give us that spirit of boldness to preach the gospel, that we would see men, women, children come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, we have a break, and then we're going to hear Rob Myers. <laughs>